Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Health Tech Pigeon podcast, bringing you the top health tech news stories and analysis every week. I'm Henry, and back with me today, I've got the remarkable Jessica Farmery and the troubled Hugh Penson from the Somex team. I should point out, Hugh's asked me to describe him as troubled. Jess, Hugh, how have your weeks been? Hi, Henry. Um, delighted to be here. Um, we've had a fun-packed week. So we had a team day on Monday and the whole Somex team got together. We had our Google event on Monday night, which was fantastic. And then two full days at the Giant Conference. So, yeah, what a, what a week. What can I say? It's been great to meet lots of different people, talk about to lots of cool people doing fun things in health tech. Nice. Hugh, how have you found it all? Yeah, well, very similar week. Uh, really met a lot of great people at all all of the events we've done. Fantastic event um, at Google on Monday night with a team from Birdie and Holly Health and uh, a really uh, great selection of people in the room to talk to. Uh, Giant Health, similar. Yeah, they've all been really good fun. Okay, first story this week coming to us from our friends at techcrunch.com. We Walk, that's W-A-L-K, raises for smart cane for visually impaired people. Hugh, you've got the uh, the lowdown on this one. So this is a great story. Um, so We Walk develops a GPS-enabled smart cane, which connects to a smartphone app for those who are visually impaired. So it's a great little tool that helps people navigate their surroundings uh, much more easily uh, than they might have done in the past. Uh, that device has been out since 2019. And they've just announced they've raised two million to uh, extend what it what it's capable of and uh, expand it to uh, different demographics as well. Okay, so how does it? Do you have a, an understanding of roughly how it how it works? Uh, yeah, in terms of how it works, it's a GPS enabled cane, so uh, connecting with satellites, obviously, and helping people navigate. They've not explained what the uh, the next phase of it looks like, but sort of the understanding is that it'll be uh, able to read road signs and help people navigate more effectively. Uh, and I think you know how that works uh, is anyone's guess at this point. But looking forward to finding finding out how and uh, it's clearly got the backing of some great investors yeah it looks like they've partnered with microsoft seeing ai so the whole seeing road signs and being able to interpret them thing doesn't feel like it would be too far off because seeing ai can already do a lot of that so that's uh that's quite something best of luck to WeWalk. then that looks like an incredibly impressive piece of tech let's move on next article comes to us from fastcompany.com Healthcare may be a recession-proof field, but health tech is not. I would say this is probably my favourite article this year, written by a guy who left a Martech uh, company to join a health tech startup that raised $200 A year later, he found uh, himself laid off, acknowledges the fact that that might give him a degree of bitterness, but he genuinely is positive. But he makes three points about health tech, and I'm just going to list them now, and then Jess and Hugh and I will have a little chat about them. The first one is... Too many health tech companies are trying to position themselves as end-to-end solutions. The second, health tech is plagued by execs who only talk to other execs. It's going to be an uncomfortable conversation. Uh, And the third is that the established health tech companies, health tech players, he calls them, have little incentive to improve. These are all things that I've thought for a long time and never had the gumption or the ability or the platform, I suppose, to put them in the public domain. Uh, I'm incredibly glad that he's done so because I think they're really uncomfortable things for everyone to talk about Um, but they're really important things I was wondering Jess Hugh do you have any views on those three points Um, I think the second point um, about health tech execs only speaking to other execs um, is a super important one I mean 
I think it's also important to note that there are a lot of players in the health tech space who are really making efforts to change this. Um, so there are a lot of companies who proactively will go out and they will build their products in direct consultation with the users, so with patients, with clinicians, um, with healthcare admin staff. Um, and they really make it a priority to understand these people's pain points properly and design solutions that actually meet these pain points. But um, they are in the minority. And the sad truth is that a lot of um, health technology is built for imagined problems for imagined people. Yeah, it's there's... I mean, we saw companies like Accurex do an amazing job of that over the last couple of years. There's this, there are always two sides to this, right? So there are the people who go down the the Henry Ford. If I'd asked people what they wanted, they would have said, build me a faster, uh, build me a faster horse rather than create the car. And then there's the much more product team led, user experience led kind of innovations. And I think you're right that whilst there is an element on the, the Henry Ford side of that argument that is you know, great innovators will always create great things. Healthcare problems are simplistically complex, I would say, in that they, the actual problems that people want solved that will save them time, that will give them back the bit like the time to care for patients are often not that complex. And actually just getting a really good consultation group, a really good cab, like customer advisory board, and designing things in conjunction with as many people as you can who actually do the job day to day for me in healthcare is always going to be the best way of creating solutions. Yeah, and I think also it's recognising that no two healthcare settings are exactly the same and that any technology that you create has to have an element of customization so that you can tweak it to fit the specific circumstances. You can't have a kind of one-size-fits-all model there. I mean, the, the point that really resonates the most with me from this article is his third point. So established players have little incentive to improve. I, I know I've seen in my career people who are putting out tenders or organizations putting out tenders um, that have the requirement to integrate with company-wise solution X uh, when everyone knows full well that the only thing that does that is another one of company-wise products. And it's uh, it's a frustration, definitely. But he's right. There are There is very little incentive to improve, even though we now have it, you know interoperability standards and they're meant to be mandated. The com- there's no timeframes attached to that. The companies who are required to allow other companies to integrate into their electronic health record their electronic patient record they could they could make it take seven years and in that time they could build out what they're integrating with it just it's such a frustrating position to be in Hugh is that something you've ever come across I know you've done a lot of a lot of public sector work yeah so I mean I think this kind of builds into two points as well is that imposed change is never the best route so you know jumping back to that uh, point two with the execs only ever speak to execs if you only have that two-way conversation at the top of the organization and it gets pushed down um without that kind of user um aspect w- working to design with the people who are using product then you, you won't get a great product but i think one thing that holds back on the established players is it's not just that they have little incentive to improve it's who is responsible for giving them those targets and who is responsible for setting them? And there's been a tendency for, particularly in the public sector, particularly in the UK public sector, but you know, I think it's true elsewhere as well, um, for public sector bodies to favour the incumbent, to favour the people who can point to this and say, you know, we've been working with you for decades. Obviously, we're the right people to go. So that that probably is one of the you know the biggest drivers of them having little incentive to improve both in the EHR space, but you see it all across the public sector. How we overcome that, how we kind of put the put the innovative companies out there a bit more and help that 
happen from the kind of the the buyer level as well as the um, supplier level. That's going to be key. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. It's honestly one of my favorite opinion pieces, if not my favorite, that has come out in twenty twenty two. I think it. I think it should be required reading for everyone selling into any health system um, or anyone building products for health systems as well. And it's really uncomfortable to read. Um, but the most important opinion pieces are uncomfortable to read. Let's go on to the next story. So next story comes to us from digitalhealth.net, our friends at digitalhealth.net. The first four regional secure data environments have been confirmed. Hugh, what interesting tidbits lie below that quite quite dry title? Okay, so Data Saves Lives came out this year from the government, and it was all about how the data that's kind of trapped in our health system on a population level can help um, researchers understand our population health better, you know, advise on decision-making, advise on um, the way services are delivered, advise on care, and then kind of look a bit, a bit wider and uh, think about how health differs by demographics and everything like that. Um, but what was sort of recommended um, as that is a sort of more, a better way of allowing access to that data by researchers um, in a safe way that didn't put patient data at risk and didn't make it more vulnerable to exploitation, to data attack, cyber attacks, data security problems and everything like that. And what this story is, is the kind of announcement of the first four secure data environments. So these are going to be, I guess, establishments, regional establishments of data where um, researchers can access that data in that more safe and secure way. Uh, and it's kind of the centerpiece of this, how do they use that data for R&D? Um, so what's going to happen is initially four, but soon 11 um, of these sites will be established, um, which is... I mean, I guess the most interesting uh, tidbit is that um, it's actually not what um, the Goldacre review of data um, uh, recommended in exactly, which was to have, you know, a, a smaller selection of these. And the the more um, the more there were, the more you were breaking up that data, and the less valuable it becomes to R and D. So there's a there's an interesting point there. Either way, um, I think you know data in health is really suffering with um, being in silos at the moment. So bringing that data together can only be a good thing, but I think there's still areas to overcome. Um, even within these regions, there are going to be challenges with, you know, where is this data kept? Who's accessing it? Where? Um, so, you know, interesting to see sort of how valuable these are. Interesting as well to see whether it overcomes some of the challenges that um, sort of previous initiatives did when it came to kind of bringing together and sharing NHS patient data for research. You'll remember last year, um, there was the NHS initiative to kind of share um, your patient records, and everyone had to initially opt out, and then opt in. Um, and then it was scrapped altogether. Um, so, you know, a few challenges are up and coming, a few questions on how effective it'll be, but, you know, quite an interesting story and interest to see where it goes. I think we're probably going to end up talking about data every week on this podcast for the rest of time. But it's important, and you mentioned the Goldacre Review there, uh, which had one of the most, I'd say, interesting sections on ethics, or data ethics in health that I've ever seen. Um, highly recommend finding a copy of that and going through the ethical section. But I'm quite excited about this. I think that 
it's uh, and doing things in waves is a nice way of doing it, right? So the wave one sites are London, Northwest, Thames Valley, and Surrey in the West Midlands. Um, sorry, I've done the, done the timing of that wrong. Surrey in the West Midlands is not a region. So the wave one sites are London, Northwest, Thames Valley, and Surrey, and West Midlands. And I really like it when the NHS does sort of trial piloty stuff in waves because I think it works really well. And you, what you end up with is is nice blueprints and the the best example of this is the when ICSs were still STPs when they moved into ICSs they had wave one ICSs so you had like Dorset Greater Manchester I think one Gloucestershire one of the London ones anyway some of the ICSs were allowed to be wave one ICSs and come up with sort of blueprints come up with plans for how to like for the best practice the best ways of uh, of working as a combined area and I think that this could be a really good incentive and a really good way of creating blueprints for the future um future regional secure data environments or sdes which is great great news so positive progress even if they've ignored ben goldacre and his lovely review let's move on to the next story Next piece comes to us from Crunchbase News. It's a Q&A uh, with a health tech founder about how our aging population will change healthcare, which links very nicely into what we were discussing with Birdie and Holly Health at Google's offices in King's Cross on Monday at our event. Jess, talk us through uh, talk us through the opinions from this. Yeah, so um, globally we have a rapidly aging population. So it's predicted that in the UK in the next twenty five years, um, the number of people older than eighty five will double. So that'll be two point six million people um, over 20, um, who are aged over eighty five. Um, and by twenty thirty, it's predicted that one in six people in the world will be aged sixty years or over. Um, so the scale of the challenge from a healthcare perspective is going to be huge. Um, and we don't just want to support people to live longer lives we want these longer lives to be healthier ones as well um, and in this Q&A with um, Kelsey Mallard who's a US healthcare veteran she's exploring some of the key issues that need to be looked at in order to facilitate these healthier longer lives um, some of the big challenges that she mentions are how can we um, ensure that all of these people have access to care um, whether that be virtual or in person at a time when we have clinician shortages and huge pressure on healthcare systems um, how can care be provided in different locations? Um, so as we've discussed before on the podcast, um, the care of the future is not just going to be care that's delivered in hospitals, it's going to be care that's delivered at the home um, and in various other settings. Um, and so Kelsey explores how this is, could be made possible. Um, and then she also touches on how we can support this generation to engage with digital technologies. Um, so every generation that comes along um, are more familiar, more used to using digital technologies in every aspect of their lives. Um, and so we need to kind of figure out how technologies can be used to deliver the most effective health and care support um, in a way that really works for each new generation that comes along. Um, so definitely recommend going and checking out the full Q&A um, if this is something which you're interested in, which everyone should be because it's something which is going to concern all of us. Go back to those stats you said at the beginning there. Um, how many people are going to be over 85? 2.6 million in the next 25 wow. years. Is that in the UK? Yeah, that's in the UK. That's... A lot. So I've lived in a I've lived in a country that's described as a demographic time bomb by lots of people. I lived in Japan uh, exactly the time that it crossed over from selling more adult diapers every year than children's diapers, which is uh, a kind of an interesting way of looking at the tipping point of a country that has a, a rapidly aging, well, 
aging at the same speed we all are um but a population that is getting grayer i think is the correct term in terms of demographic and it it's worrying they're like really worrying and it's worrying to think that our population pyramid could look the same because the implications for an already stretched health system are huge like naturally on average older people require a lot more care so it feels like this is something we should be doing more planning for as a as a health system yeah, and I think, well, one of the ways in which we can plan for this is to try and get in as many preventative health um, measures as possible now and just encouraging people who are alive now to be living healthier lives so that when they reach old age, they will be less of a burden on health systems because they'll have lived healthier lives and therefore hopefully not have as many complications as they age. You've got to hope so. I think that's one of the, that was originally at least one of the key points of having the ICSs, right, was that they could use all of the data from across an entire region to work out what the key areas that they should be working on were and then plow money into those um, and use that for preventative healthcare for things like type 2 diabetes and smoking cessation and other things i always go to diabetes and smoking when i do these don't know why um okay fine Hugh, are anything? we funding the right things like i mean if we're if the focus should be on preventative um you know just to look at some of the the elder care um, startups and raises that have uh, been through already. You know, we're looking at Kelsey Mellard's company has twenty two point two million dollars in funding. Birdie's obviously taken a lot. Sarah Care, um, these companies that are focusing on the how to manage rather than prevent um, the challenge uh, seem to be raising. Some of the sort of more preventative ones seem to be struggling. So, what what's the story there? I think the strategy has to be twofold, doesn't it? You can't, the short term strategy is obviously to, to to work with the companies who do the immediate problem, the here and now. But short term thinking is, is something we're excellent at in, at the top level in the UK. And long term planning has not always necessarily been a strength. Um, so I think that if if we know this is the way in which society is going, and there will be, there are, I mean, we know that there are fewer people in their late 20s and 30s having kids than there were a generation ago. And we also know that people are living longer. So we need to look at that and say, not only from a tax-based point of view, because there will be less tax money to go around if there are fewer people working and therefore less money for nationalised systems like health, but also from a, it is sensible to invest a pound now to save yourself 200 pounds in 30, 40 years. So there needs to be a preventative strategy as well. But yeah, you're right. We need to look at working with some of the solutions that I'm saying we like I'm the NHS. I'm just to be very clear, I am not the NHS. Um, But the NHS needs to be investing in in the short term, but also there needs to be long term thinking from the Department of Health and Social Care on this. No, I was going to say that um, I guess this is the like it's a problem that governments will come up again 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 like they need to make plans now that will pay off in 30 years time but governments don't like to make plans that pay off in 30 years time they like to make plans and investments that pay off in five years time just before the next election comes around yep and before i get more depressed on this friday morning uh, let's move on to our next story which ties in very nicely to what jess has just said Okay, and on a story, a similar bent, I suppose, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak tells NHS to embrace robot workers as it prepares to sack staff. Right. Where shall we start with this one? 
excellent timing for this to come with all the talk of the nursing strikes. Um, Rishi's just come out and said he's going to sack everyone anyway. So, yeah, even better timing. Actually, Hugh, you raised a point before we came on air about uh, about a particular robot. Do you want to... Yeah, well, I think what this story tells us is that Rishi has lo- you know, recently been spending a lot of time in Darren Valley Hospital. Um, <laughs> uh, Haven't we the, all? <laughs> watching the valuable success and you know, incredible contribution made by the sassy cleaning robot. Uh, and has thought how, you know, this is already operating in a hospital. How can we take that success, take that you know, real sassy measure and apply it to elsewhere in the health system. So we'll see how that goes. But all I can say is I'm not sure if I was operating on a patient or looking, you know, trying to trying to help a patient through what's of the hardest times in their lives that I'd want to be assisted by a uh, sassy surgical robot. So <laughs> we'll see how that goes. I, I love the idea of the Prime Minister just being sat on the outskirts of Dartford in a hospital looking at a robot and being like, that's it? That's the solution. But it, look, there are amazing examples of robotics in working within the NHS, right? In surgery, ideally, as Hugh says, not sassy. You don't want it to be like, am I going to make the incision? Okay, fine. No one needs that from their robot, but there are amazing bits of robotics working there. <laughs> but the idea that as this article goes on to say, that you could get rid of 50% of staff and replace them with robotics when we can't get a robot to mop a little bit of Kent properly is... If we can revisit that, if we can just revisit that story, there was, you know, the healthcare staff at Down Valley Hospital reported following this robot around cleaning up after <laughs> it. So, you know, if that's an indication of, you know, how it would help with workforce, then it would be, um, you know, replace the workforce with the robot and then hire the workforce to look after the robot. Yeah, look, it's a really difficult one. I, I never want to poo-poo, uh, is that the word I'm using there? It is, let's go with it. I never want to poo-poo innovation in the NHS. I think it's a great idea. And I think there are elements of uh, where robots are useful. But to say that you're going to get rid of 50% of the staff, whatever whatever his percentage is, and they could be replaced with robotics is is a combination of insulting and absurd um, because there are things that robots will never be able to do. Robots aren't going to be able to feed patients. They're not going to be able to replace a bandage or, a, you know, give a patient a bed bath. There are so many jobs that are crucial to the, that we don't think of as like the big glamorous jobs, but are crucial to everyday infection control and everyday patient management that HCAs do, that nurses do, that are not going to be removed by robotics. And I think to argue that, you know, the future isn't investing in a smart and sensible and collaborative workforce plan that allows people to feel like they are the, the organization they work for the nhs is invested in them rather than you know them being invested in it which is often the case to say that is is ridiculous because the workforce plan is is the most important thing here right we have to make sure that we both retain and potentially retrain but also recruit enough human beings to do the human job that is health and care and then you can support them with robotics you can support them with ai but to go out to business leaders and be like robotics is the future of healthcare is does a huge disservice to the people who work the human people who work within the nhs Last time that I was in a hospital, um, I was feeling kind of scared, nervous, a bit upset. Um, and it was like the fantastic nurses and the staff in the hospital um, who just made me feel so much better, um, made me laugh, um, completely removed any anxiety I had. And I'm not really sure that a robot would have done quite the same job there. So, um, yeah. Dehumanising healthcare, I think, would be a really interesting 
an interesting thing to debate on this podcast or at a Google event or at some event in the future, because I think there is a role for non-human interaction for robotics, for AI, as I say, but care is, care is so hugely personal and so incredibly emotive that I can't imagine what it would be like if your robot nurse turned up and was like, here are your four options for responses from me. Like, would you like a sassy reply, a comforting reply? Like, I just, it doesn't feel like that will ever, we will ever get to that. If we are looking for a place to use AI in health, then I have just asked GPT-3 to write us some health policy ideas. So, you know, if we're looking to replace somebody. Hugh, you haven't actually asked ChatGPT to write a workforce policy for the NHS, have you? I have, and its contributions are fantastic. Uh, you can go with stop relying on overworked and underpaid staff to hold the NHS together. It's time to invest in our workforce and give them the support and recognition they deserve. Did you ask it to do it in a in a sassy manner, or like have you have you deliberately gone kind of aggressive with these? No, I did ask it to do it in a sassy manner. That's how you Fabulous. want your NHS policy ideas, <laughs> uh, presented. I feel all policy could be improved with a little sass. Carry on. What else is uh, what else has ChatGPT given us today? Uh, invest in mental health support for staff to ensure that they can cope with the demands of their jobs. Nobody can be at their best when they're burnt out and stressed. And if you do invest in it, do talk about it. When I was working at, well, I was working at a previous company uh, during the pandemic, and we were the designated sort of um, uh, telehealth service for NHS workers to talk about their mental health, and no one used it because no one knew it existed. So yeah, if you're going to invest in mental health support, do tell people that it's available. Couldn't agree more. Finally, on the uh, AI-driven NHS policy ideas, we've got prioritised diversity and inclusion in the NHS workforce. We need a workforce that reflects the communities we serve, and that means actively promoting equality and challenging discrimination. And with that, I can only say, isn't it amazing that an AI can write more human (laughs) policy than a human can? Uh, Yeah, amazing is one word, depressing is the other word, right? I think... Uh, it's also amazing that we've managed to get a, a, a workforce plan out of a, a chat AI when we've been waiting for an NHS one for just a smidgen short of 21 years now, uh, or at least a full one. Um, let's talk a little bit about chat GPT. There's been lots of talk this week in health tech, and I know we're veering wildly off from our original story, but why not? Chat GPT has been all over socials this week with people asking it humorous things people asking it important things i saw one this morning there someone asked it whether um healthcare professionals or management consultants consultants offered more value to society uh, which had a very interesting comment chain underneath it um but it's also it's been talked about as a sort of uh, a, its potential applications in healthcare uh, and the value of of ai generally in healthcare i don't know if either of you have any views on this but i feel that there's there's a lot of ways this could be applied. Yeah, so I've seen a few examples of what it can do, uh, not in the healthcare space. It's really interesting and it can be really impressive. I think there are some things it performs really, really well in, as we just saw, asking it to give us sassy ideas, tone of voice. It's absolutely doing an amazing work in. Uh, and then delivering things like strategies for people where it, if you know, if I'm really honest, it was repurposing stuff that's out there available, not really doing strategic thinking alongside it just repurposing what's there. How valuable that can be in healthcare, I think that could be, you know, really important for kind of making things, you know, introducing those efficiencies, automating things where they can be doing, taking common sense, taking the things that are established and well understood, and, you know, reducing the time it takes to get sign off on decisions and things like that. That's fine. Is it going to transform the way we deliver care? 
fundamentally. Who knows? Yeah, there's there's some amazing examples of it working. There are, I mean, ChatGPT is based on a, on a previous system that they built um, that only two years ago in the pandemic was in the news for telling, it was being used as a, a sort of a, a triaging AI tool uh, and uh, told someone with suicidal ideation to kill themselves or that they should kill themselves. So the the technology is evolving, but I think, yeah, we're probably probably not going to see it taking over the world of health just yet. That said, um, when uh, GPT-3 came out this week and was impressing us all, and a few people pointed out, you know, it's, it's, it's still not going to change the way we do things, I did see someone pointing out that GPT-4 is just around the corner. So, you know, maybe that, that's going to be the swing point. That's what we're hoping for. Fascinating times with ChatGPT. So one final thing before we go. Next week is a slightly different health tech pigeon. We're going to be doing a 2022 Christmas quiz. So you can join Hugh and Jess uh, and Belle and our friend Dr. Steve uh, as we do four rounds of health tech news from the last 12 months with a pigeon twist. Hugh and uh, Jess, you make up one team. Are you looking forward to it? Yeah, um, Hugh and I have had rigorous training sessions over the past few months and um, we're ready to show everyone what we've learned. Excellent, excellent. I, I... I don't doubt that in the slightest. Do you have a team name yet? Um, that'll be a surprise for the day. I can't wait. I love a Christmas surprise. Well, that's all we've got time for on this week's Health Tech Pigeon podcast. That was us analysing the health tech news so you don't have to. Join us next week and check out all the articles we've talked about and some of the best jobs and pods in health tech at healthtechpigeon.com. <laughs>